Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Okay, everyone, um, welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. We're here with our guest, Haley Pesson, um, who does some incredible work in writing in the um, abolitionist and anti-racist, anti-capitalist space. And yeah, we're going to be talking today about abolition, especially, and how it connects to socialism. And uh, yeah, this is kind of going to be building on some ideas that uh, in Solidarity Winnipeg, we've been thinking about regarding Winnipeg-specific stuff as it relates to abolition and sort of tying some more theoretical sides of things into what we're seeing day-to-day um, as abolitionists in the community. And yeah, we're excited to talk to Haley, who has a lot of experience and thoughts on this subject. So let's just go around and introduce ourselves. So I'm Travis. I'm Jeff. And I'm Haley. So Haley, did you want to maybe give a introduction about yourself and your work? Sure. So um, I am a longtime socialist and activist uh, living in New York and Queens. Um, I uh, used to be part of um, the international socialist tradition, still pretty much am, but I'm in Tempest. Um and I'm actually part of the Tempest Collective editorial board for our magazine, tempestmag.org. Um, I'm a legal service worker, and I am in 1199 SEIU. I'm actually just this year elected to be a delegate for my local. And uh, I am about to have a book come out. I'm co-editing a book uh, with Anthony Arnov called Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century, uh, building off of the work of Howard Zinn. So that's all about me. That's really exciting. I uh, actually didn't know that you had the book coming out. So now I'm, now I'm excited to read that when it comes out. We'll get started with some questions for you. Just wondering what the landscape was kind of looking like uh, when you first got involved in this work. Um, so like, how did you get into becoming an abolitionist? Um, what was that process like for you? And maybe what were some of the experiences you had early on um, that brought you to this? I'm actually really glad you asked that um, because uh, in a way, I feel like it's a straightforward thing from socialism to abolition in the sense that we're talking about two projects that see an end goal as a society that actually provides for everybody's needs and safety, um, where people have everything they need to thrive and survive, um, and where the priority is human need. So there's you know a lot of connections there. Um, and at the same time, I feel like these spaces in some ways have been very separate, um, either for different historical reasons or um, maybe just when I was coming up. So I was, uh, interestingly, I guess I got politicized around things like the struggle to free Mumia Abu-Jamal. 
I had, um, I'm a red diaper baby. So I was lucky in that sense that that was something I learned about very early um, and uh, did some work around campaign to end the death penalty. Um, but uh, in, a, in a way, I feel like I would not have identified as an abolitionist in quite the way that I do now, even before the movement in 2020, uh, because I think that there's a way that that movement made it possible to kind of imagine on a much bigger scale what it what might be possible for that movement even to demand, because there was already a movement going back to 2014 and the killing of Mike Brown, or for some people even earlier around the killing of Trayvon Martin, that was calling for reforms to the police or talking about police racism. But there was just such a qualitative shift in 2020 that really coincided with the rise of Bernie Sanders with a you know movement um, calling itself socialist. And so the fact of those two things and the fact that, you know, for some people there's been quite an intersection around them made it much easier for me to call myself an abolitionist, even though I've been a socialist for much longer. Thanks. That's um, that's great. I, I do feel like because you kind of touched on how the identities coincide, but they didn't start out together. So I just wanted to maybe jump around uh, with some of our questions, Travis, um, and just ask you a little bit about maybe how abolition is approached differently by different types of leftists. Um, so proponents of socialist, uh, socialism from below, anarchists, communists, campists, um, and then how can abolition or abolitionists on the left talk um, with leftists that disagree on um, different issues and but still like work together to um, yeah work towards defunding the police and then abolition work? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because um, I feel like a lot of the discussion around abolition was started by socialists, right? So if you think about um, pioneering Black feminists like uh, Angela Davis or Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, Mariam Kaba, you know, people who've gotten their roots. I think I'm not actually sure how Mariam Kaba identifies, but I know that her dad was a socialist. If you read her book, which is really wonderful, and I highly recommend we do this till we free us, you know, uh, there's certainly anti-capitalist ideas influencing the way that she's approached these questions. And so, um, you know, there's, there's certainly a through line in the sense that I think a majority of people who have been really pioneering thinkers in this would certainly consider themselves anti-capitalists at the very least. Um, what I think is different and really, you know, kind of a question and a challenge and something that maybe hasn't really quite worked itself out in this movement yet is what is the strategy for actually getting from where we are to the goal that we have of a police-free society, of a prison-free society? And I think that a lot of abolitionists that I've read in terms of the way that they talk about what is abolitionist practice, it's very local and it's very much about relationships between people. It's very much about developing new understandings of community and safety. Um, but it doesn't always, at least to me, get to the question of how do we actually like literally abolish the existing state of things when we know that we are up against a class that absolutely does not want that to happen. And so, at least for me, you know, there's a utility to bringing socialist and explicitly Marxist ideas to this question of what would it actually mean? What social force exists in society that we would actually take to not just try to like piecemeal reform things or even just have very, very local examples of you know abolitionist practice, but to actually say like, we don't want there to be police anywhere. We actually want to decide what safety looks like for ourselves. We want democracy and for our communities to be the ones that are in control of that um, and for it to actually genuinely be about safety and not just about um, protecting property and the ability of you know, a small group of people to make profits um, while exploiting the rest of us. And so I think that um, to me, you know, socialism has a lot to offer that explicitly revolutionary socialism because the question there is always about, you know, looking at workers and the fact that the working class is a multiracial class, that the working class is divided by all of these different things, including um, racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera. Um, 
explicitly for the ability of a small class to continue its role. So it's not like it's just an added extra or like just a byproduct of capitalism or that people just have these bad ideas. It actually is a crucial mechanism, especially in the U.S. racism, anti-Black racism from the beginning has been a crucial mechanism by which class rule has been maintained. And so if we don't confront that and if we don't actually see you know, the people with their hands on literally the levers of society saying we're going to refuse to, um, you know, drive the buses to the jails like they did in um, Ferguson and in uh, uh, Minneapolis during the uprising in 2020. We're literally not going to deliver packages of weapons to the police. We're literally going to stop, you know, the trains from uh, getting Nazis, um, you know, and white supremacists to, um you know, to do their uh, Charlottesville 2.0 in DC. Like there are very small examples. I'm citing them to just kind of be concrete about what I mean, but imagine that on an even bigger scale, like what kind of power would it take to actually shut society down? And I think that takes movements and it takes um, the specific power that workers have in the society just because of where they're positioned. Um, and so I think that putting these things in conversation, both the goals of abolition and the strategy of socialism, um, you know, really benefits each other and makes it possible to see, you know, what it would take to actually fundamentally transform society top to bottom. The way that you're talking about this is incredible to me. Like it's putting it all together in such a, uh, a way that I, I, find fascinating i think listeners to this episode will as well um it's the things that are going on in uh like in the country that you're in like are are in some ways different than here in in canada um but at the same time it's it's the same system at play so i i'm wondering about um people that when those things were happening in in 2020 people that where that was like a major wake-up call and like a politicizing moment um people that were experiencing it on some level or just you know being more of like a witness to what was going on it seems like more people have after that experience accepted that it's possible like to have a world without police and to 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 both have um the the work of getting rid of them, but then also to build something beyond that. I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts about how people can get to that next step beyond, like, it's possible, but into the, like, imagining how. So I'm thinking, like, you could learn more, like, education is, like, a huge part of it. Um, but without maybe like understanding all of those things at play, how do you see that? Like, how do you see regular people like taking steps forward in that direction? Can I add just one more thing to that too, Travis? Because um, I, I think like this idea of defund the, like when we think of defund the police or abolish the police, we're thinking about it in the context of this society that we're living in right now. That's like, you know, inherently um, discriminatory prejudice, It like the conditions are so bad. So I just want to kind of add that piece into what Travis is talking about, just to kind of get your perspective on like, imagining a completely different world than what we see right now. Yeah, that's really the big challenge. And, you know, I think, I think that the challenge is on the one hand, I think you're right, Travis, that people are much more open, certainly, than they've ever been in my lifetime. Um, and I'm from people older than me are saying that it's true for them, too. It's it's kind of the first time that abolitionist ideas have sort of been popular on this scale. Like, I mean, the New York Times bestseller list is constantly having, like, abolitionist books as, like, a bestseller. Like, there's a real hunger um, almost um, a, a challenge for abolitionist organizations that do exist, I think, is just the influx of people trying to do work on a very local level versus like the actual infrastructure and the size of the organizations trying to like feed that need and give people resources and figure out how to do things. So that's really um, a big challenge. And then I think for ordinary people, it's like, it's twofold. I mean, it's like, you know, I... 
I think there is a certain extent to which being ex- uh, determines consciousness in the sense that, you know, most working class people do not have a good relationship with the police. You know, like it's not like socialists have to come in and convince most black people that they need to like not like the police or distrust the police or have the talk, as you know, they call it, where, you know, you basically most young black men have a conversation at some point in their lives. Um, and now probably increasingly more black women do as well, black queer people. Um about how you interact with the police because it could literally cost you your life. And so it's almost like there's a challenge that people both understand this intuitively and in their experience, but we don't have an experience of what other resources could possibly exist uh, to actually address harm in society because they literally aren't funded. They literally don't exist. Like if we had a society that was as you know, open to experimentation and as willing to put resources towards all different kinds of things, all different kinds of uh, social programs, all kinds of things that we could fail at and then try again and assess collectively um, as they are to just saying, no, we're just going to put the problem behind uh, more policing, then, you know, we would have a really different situation. But that is simply not the society that we live in. We live in a society where there's actually an incentive to keep the populations most likely to resist as much under control as possible to maintain the status quo as it is. And so it, it, when it's not in someone's experience, it's like it can feel very abstract to say, don't call the police. Even if you know intuitively, if you call the police, there's always a risk. If someone is mentally ill, if somebody is in crisis, if you're actually trying to get you know, a literal crime solved, the police are going to be the worst people to call to actually resolve that. And so I think that you know, the, there is that challenge. I also think that there's some hope in some like recent experience. So for example, during the pandemic, I mean, um, I don't know as much about what the situation was like in Canada, but in the US, it's like, it was just complete government neglect. I mean, there was absolutely no oversight during the Trump administration, during the Biden administration, it's become everybody all for themselves because we need to get the economy up and running again. Um, And so there's really no guidance anymore about any kind of COVID safety. People are sort of on their own. Whereas, you know, at the height of the pandemic, I'm actually in Queens, I mentioned, I live about, um, you know, 20 minutes from what was the epicenter of the epicenter of the pandemic. It was Elmhurst Hospital. So all I heard were ambulances every day for, you know, for hours and hours on end. Um, And just to see, you know, people kind of who already might have realized that our society wasn't working saw just how much it wasn't working. Um, And yet people developed mutual aid projects. People came together in really remarkable ways to support essential workers, to support each other. Um, uh, My workplace, frankly, kind of started shutting down and it was actually working people there who kind of came together in certain ways to make it actually function for our clients who are on Rikers and were facing, you know, some of the brunt of conditions um, of the pandemic. And so, you know, I think I think we have examples, especially when social movements go up of people really being creative, much more creative than our society normally allows us to be um, in terms of figuring that out. And I guess the, the challenge also is that where there are experiments with abolition, we still don't have the infrastructure to match those experiments and to kind of generalize lessons from them everywhere. And so, you know, a, a challenge I think for the whole left going forward is how do we actually build those, you know, organizations? How do we connect these grassroots institutions that do exist? How do we build new ones where they don't currently exist so that we're on a stronger footing the next time there is an opening like 2020 and we can actually respond with real ideas and real strategy and solutions um, that don't involve the police. Yeah, it, it's it's tough to imagine, but it's like also this exciting, you just get like amped up and worked up to, to think about what the possibilities can be because it does seem like once you open your mind to it, you know, the, the possibilities could be endless. And when you have people who make the decision to take care of one another um, in this proactive way rather than a reactive way, um, it, yeah, it, it just seems like outcomes could be better for, for individuals and communities as well. Um, 
I want to ask you a bit about um, discourse around what defunding or abolishing the police kind of looks like, because um, I think you mentioned it in your uh, Tempest article that removing the police isn't the same thing as removing the very things that compel people to call the police. And I'm just looking for um, some more information on, on that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Very soon after the uprising, I feel like there was um, a section of the movement that radicalized very quickly and was kind of like, you know, forget defund, we're abolishing this thing, you know, and, you know, that was exciting, but it also, to me, I think, raises a question about like, what, you know, again, in the how do we get from here to there, I did say, and I still believe that it's going to take a really like revolutionary rupture to actually fully abolish the police um, and to actually establish the kind of society we need. We'd actually have to get rid of inequality in order to do that. Um, but I also think that when people do fight for reforms in the present, especially when they're reforms that actually decrease the power of police in our current society, um, that those are actually things that train people, A, that it's possible to win things, that collective action makes those things happen um, and raises people's horizons. You know, it's not necessarily the case that people are going to just stop at that reform and say, well, we won that. That's it. It's like racism exists in every institution in this society. There's, you know, so much work to be done. And all of these, you know, struggles have really just the you know a strong basis for us connecting the dots between them so you know i think that um i i don't tend to see them as counterposed abol abolition and defund i actually think that that demand is a pretty significant advance from where we were even in 2014 where it was much more common to hear people call for things like, let's just get more body cameras for police. If we have um, more black police officers in police departments, you know, if police were just in the community, these were the kind of demands that you heard much more frequently in 2014. And now it's like, you know, I think that people are much more clear that regardless of the literal color of the institution, the color is blue. You know, it's like, that is actually what the role of this institution is as a functioning you know, um, institution and society, its role is social control. It is a fundamentally racist um, institution. It's not just about, you know, better practices. It's also, you know, where do we actually want funding to go? If you actually ask for more body cameras, you're actually asking for more funding to go to the police as opposed to other programs that we could have. So defund is a pretty I think if we won that anywhere, that would be huge. Um, and it's really great that that's on people's minds. The other measure of it to me is actually the backlash that this demand has gotten, um, at least in the US, like the, the way that it's um, uh, sort of gone since 2020 is you have that contradiction that I mentioned before of people being very interested in, abolition, in abolitionist ideas still and being very open to learning. and. At the same time, there's been a slew of mayors in New York City. It's Eric Adams, it's Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, um, uh, in a number of places, and certainly from Biden on down, there is a massive opposition to any kind of call to defund the police. The actual bills that they've put forward are far more watered down and would not have done anything to save George Floyd's life. For example, the bill that is literally named after George Floyd calls for things like you know, um, police not uh, using chokeholds on people. And it's like, well, that law was already on the books in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is actually a case study in reforming the police. And part of the reason that movement was so radical there and people were so quick to call for abolishing the institution was because they had actually tried all of these reforms. And so um, I think it's, you know, more of a stepping stone and it's, it opens up a bigger conversation for where we want to go from here and what are the other institutions that we think actually need to be fundamentally transformed or abolished. As you were talking, I was like thinking, because I just had this like piece of propaganda, I think it showed up to me on Instagram, um, that Germany like came out with this um, ad that uh, a cab now stands for like all cops are beautiful. 
Um, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and, I saw that. that's so crazy yeah like the propaganda around like oh police are good they're nice people they take care of us they look after us they answer our calls it's just pushed at you like and on so many levels and media also does that too like I read an article yesterday in Winnipeg where our police force is is calling for more money to to have more um, emergency dispatchers. And like that's tied into, you know, healthcare here. You have ambulance who are going, fire who's going, but like the police take care of that call center. Uh, So it's just crazy how how much is like pushed at you. And I think I also just recently heard... um, and I don't want to maybe quote the statistics too much. I think that it was it was in the states that since 2020, there's been a, such an increase in violent crimes. And we're also seeing that here in Canada, that um, the conditions that people find themselves in are just getting so bad that uh, it's all about survival. So um, but but we're told or the yeah media pushes to us that, well, police will deal with that issue rather than you know, funding housing, having access to food, like all of those things. Yeah, you're making me think, you know, um, just to speak to New York specifically, I mean, Eric Adams right now is waging an all-out war on every public institution. Um, This is the mayor um, of New York City. Uh, Basically, every single institution across the board, every public institution is going to get a 3% cut in the next budget except the police, literally. It's like, we couldn't make it more obvious, but um, it's it's also the fact that what are they cutting? They're cutting funding for hospitals, for education, for mental health services, for any number of things that could actually be an alternative that might actually deal with the massive crisis that we're having. There's a huge housing crisis in New York. It's, I think right now, one of the most, if not the most expensive places to live not just in the US, but anywhere. Um, and that is, you know, just producing an enormous crisis for people. And they really are not dealing with it in any meaningful way. So, you know, what you said, I think is, is really important. Um, these efforts to kind of like, you know, pinkwash, queerwash, I don't know, um, greenwash the police. Um, when, they're essentially doing that instead of actually making these other institutions accessible and available to people is really quite cynical. Um, But it's also, you know, it's capitalizing on a real problem, which is that we are experiencing certain kinds of social collapse. I mean, in the US right now, um, last year, the police killed 1,176 people. This is the institution that's supposed to be providing safety and, you know, addressing crime. Um, there's so much more to say on that, but I just think that it's it's so telling how um, how kind of cynical these arguments are about the crime wave um, and how how much they are not actually addressing people's real needs. I want to ask you about. Um... There, there was something in in your article uh, for Tempest defund the police um, about like allocating money to life giving resources, and just based on what you were talking about just now, I'm uh, thinking about like yeah, these kind of destructive versus you know life giving uh, places that money could go to, and also like power and and responsibility um what are your thoughts on i'm trying to put this into a question because like it's kind of like abstract uh but like you know healthcare is pretty deeply tied up with policing and incarceration here where we live and i i I probably more of an extent in in the u.s um with considering like the privatization and the inequality that comes out of that. Um, How do you see uh, like from more of like a socialist perspective, how those kind of things could shift if the, the people that were making the decisions were, were different. So if rather than 
the systems we have right now. This was coming from, you know, democracy from from below and the both from the workers and in those fields, like in healthcare, uh, but then the people in the communities. I, I don't know if that's like a question, but there's something in there. Uh, hopefully you could respond to more eloquently. Maybe I'm taking this in a slightly different direction, but I think, you know, it's worth when we talk about this addressing sort of the extreme of how people tend to try to justify the existence of the police, which is they go to, well, what about the rapists? Well, what about the murderers? Right. Um, and I think that uh, aside from the fact that crime rates do not go up or down depending on how much policing there is, that they actually fluctuate kind of regardless of whether there are police. I think that one of the things that is really helpful about abolitionist thinking, and I'll get to the socialism part of this, but I think what's really helpful about abolitionist thinking is that instead of seeing, you know, other people and harm as this thing that we need like another institution to kind of like protect us from. There's um, that saying, we keep us safe. And I think that's, you know, maybe a very small, um, you know, thing that really encapsulates a lot, which is to say that instead of relying on an external institution, which really does not even have those interests in mind of addressing these harms and in many ways perpetuates them, um, especially in prisons and jails, you know, what if we actually had um, community methods of dealing with these things? Um, what if these things existed in every community? What if we all developed skills to actually be able to address these things? And it wasn't kind of the province of any like small group of people to try to deal with it. Um, but I, I raise that because I think that the biggest challenge is we live in a society that you know, has so many layers of oppression um, and where um, one of the manifestations of that oppression is interpersonal harm. And I find the thing that abolitionists do is instead of kind of counterposing these things, they're basically saying, how do we address interpersonal harm in a way that does not end up criminalizing more people, that does not actually end up harming more people as a result? Um, and those aren't easy answers, um, but I think that the fact that these are not counterposed, like I'm thinking in particular, um, I'm actually reading a book right now um, called Abolition Feminism Now, um, which is, uh, you know, co-written by a number of really excellent thinkers, Angela Davis, uh, Beth Ritchie, a number of others. Um, and their, their starting point is this abolitionist conference um, that was started by Insight um, and Critical Resistance together to abolitionist formations um, and how they tried to put those two conversations about feminism and anti-violence and the right of people to defend themselves against violence um, in conversation with um, a discussion about how to actually end systemic violence and not seeing those interpersonal things and the systemic violence as counterposed, but as deeply intertwined. So, you know, back to the socialism part of all this, I just think that if we had an actually democratic society, we would have the ability to decide which forms of addressing harm work for our community or work on a larger scale. And right now, we don't have any control over the way that society addresses crime. We are actually in a dictatorship in that sense, right? Um, one that completely um, puts all power in bodies of armed men, as Marx put it. You know, so um, and again, I think that the the bottom line is to ask, you know, what are the police actually for? I think if we were to imagine power differently, it's like, you know we're not talking about an equivalent where we're just like policing each other or where power is just there for the sake of, you know, protecting individuals, but it's actually about protecting the community. And I think that that's a much more, you know, um, both a positive basis on which to imagine power and also one that I think may actually be more effective at addressing crime and harm. That is a lot to think about. Uh, it, it's, I, I just want to add something on to this. Uh, uh, so I, I was recently in a workshop uh, put on by a, 
a group based here in Winnipeg called Bar None, and they're an abolitionist group. They uh, started as like a, a group that provided rideshare programs for um, visiting family and friends and that are incarcerated. And yeah, part of this workshop was talking about what is safety and what is danger like to this group that's in the workshop and started to come up that these questions are completely different based on who you're talking to but that you know like in communities you could probably end up with pretty much consensus and yeah like when what you were talking about like figuring out what that looks like like for each community like given the choice of what you would do to handle a situation rather than handing it over to the police as, as we have to. And then a lot of the time, what danger is just comes down to like protecting property and it's nothing about like life giving or protecting lives in a lot of way. Yeah. Just on that, you know, um, I think an even simpler exercise is really to ask, you know, if we talk about safety and you ask like, what things would you need to be safe? Most people would talk about health, about food, about a place to live, about resources, education, all kinds of things. Police are the last thing that you talk about for ensuring safety. And what communities actually already exist where safety is provided on that basis? It exists in rich communities. There's no wealthy community where police are patrolling the streets at night and cracking heads and making, you know, stopping people and making people actually feel pretty unsafe. Um, so, you know, and even, uh, I guess it's just to say, if we had all of those resources democratically decided upon, it would mean that we actually had those things rather than them being, um, you know, totally inaccessible to most people. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. In both of your comments, you just kind of had me uh, turning the wheels a little bit in my head. And and there's something about finding an alternative way to deal with um, concerns in your community that is like when you remove maybe the justice system, the police, like you're thinking um, big changes, like how do you... I, I see building a stronger community, um, starting with working on collective issues together. So if a neighbor hurts you or a community member hurts you, um, you know, be it like, maybe it's an argument, maybe things do get violent. Like when you're at home and your family and, and you have issues with you, with your family or your friends, like you right away try to solve a problem. You try to work together on it. Um, and so when we think about these uh, bigger ideas in our larger communities and neighborhoods, it's like, well, wouldn't that be just a better way to deal with things when they come up in our community? Um, because that's how you're going to build connection and relationships with people that ultimately, when you see like, I think, a community like that, you're less isolated, you have more connection, there's more solidarity, um, you know, to keep building that working class movement going forward. Absolutely. Um, actually, you know, um, one thing I've found helpful is a book that came out recently called Beyond Survival. And, uh, it's um, strategies and stories from the transformative justice movement. It's like a collection of essays that are, you know, really about experiments and abolition. So if you want to know, like, what does this look like in practice? It's, again, not that people um, are constantly succeeding and finding, you know, that every method that they try works. Um, in fact, one thing in the um, Miriam Kaba book that I found, you know, um, useful was just you know, the fact that like we have giant corporations that are allowed to throw things at the wall and fail. And we just accept that as like a part of the process of like capitalism functioning. But we don't do that for any other kind of, you know, community project or the ways that, you know, social work functions um, and we don't put resources towards it. So I think that um, 
what's helpful about this book is that it gives some concrete examples and assessments of things that work. So um, one example is um, a woman who's talking about um, a uh, person in one of the activist spaces who was um, uh, a sexual abuser who had um, sexually assaulted her um, and trying to work with other groups to you know, and this was an immigrant rights community. So she was trying to work with other groups to both not get police involved because these were people who could be, you know, legally at risk or their status could be at risk if police were to be involved, while also uh, protecting people from this person. And, you know, also not reducing it to just that person, but just a question of sexual violence more broadly of how would the community actually deal with that. Um, and so, um, she reached out to other activist groups that were currently working with this person or working with the group that they were a part of. And they kind of negotiated and tried to figure out, you know, in what circumstances could we work with this person? Can we ever work with this person? Um, and, it, and ultimately, um, at a rally they called, they decided, well, we're not going to work with this person going forward. They have we've given them opportunities to be accountable and they have not. And they're causing harm in the community. And so you know, the solution um, actually affirmed um, the survivors of this person um, in terms of their, uh, the community that they had around them to continue doing the immigrant rights work that they were doing. And I, I found that to be just one kind of positive example of how this could work. Um, and, you know, there's, I think, you know, many more examples, but uh, I highly recommend just reading them with the, with the grace and kind of the caveat that like, we really should be open to experimentation. And that's something I find very hopeful and useful about how abolitionists have approached these problems. I'm definitely going to read that. Um, I, I'm wondering, like, uh, so that sounds like that's sort of something that would be happening within uh, more of like an activist space. Um, and I, I know that the like transformative justice is, uh, that's like a practice that's present here in Winnipeg as well. And, uh, you know, at hopefully can, can stretch beyond, uh, those spaces into, um, like the lives of people that, that aren't like, you know, activists, but, um, I'm wondering about, uh, when you're talking to, or maybe not even just yourself, just like abolitionists are, are talking to people that, um, do not have these experiences of of organizing and of like practicing transformative justice with other activists and stuff how do you how would you describe to people like what a world without police so kind of beyond what we've been talking about of like more like dismantling getting past like when it comes to actually like building that new world how would you describe what that could look like to people that maybe don't have as much of that frame of reference? I mean, I think I would still start with uh, something uh, like the example of what rich communities are like or of what safe communities look like in um, our current society. I think it's, you know, for me, the most convincing cases for abolition or for socialism um, have started with what we already have knowing that we actually don't get to use or control those resources. So, you know, there's a limit to how much we can imagine because, you know, we're working with the material conditions that we have. We're working with the conditions that we exist under. If we get to a socialist society, you know, there's going to be so many things that we haven't even imagined as far as what people can do because they'll actually have the possibility of doing it. Um, but I think that when you start with, um, the fact that we, you know, in this country live in one of the wealthiest societies in the world, and yet we cannot provide basic things for people and the police get funded annually to the tune of like $123 billion. It's like, well, where does the money go? That's actually a loss of resources for people. Um, it's actually, you know, it's why people talk about not just defunding the police, but the kind of 
you know, corollary demand is refund the community. And the refund is talking really about a kind of reparations, um, not just in like a very literal monetary sense, but resources that are actively disinvested from in communities of color in particular, um, but in working class communities in general through austerity um, and whatnot. So I think that um, that's always a good starting point. Um, but I also think, you know, people aren't always going to change their mind from a conversation. You know, I could give you the best ideas in the world. And again, if it's not in your experience, it's not necessarily going to resonate. But that is to me why it matters that we're raising these things in every movement space that we're in, in every workplace that we're in. We find opportunities as socialists to actually connect whatever struggles we're going through to the broader vision of the kind of society that would actually resolve these problems. That's at the root um, of, of why these problems exist to begin with. Um, and so people may not immediately accept abolitionist ideas, but they'll certainly accept that we need to fight for healthcare. Well, what if that healthcare, as you mentioned, is tied to policing and surveillance, you know? So what is a fully, you know, universal healthcare system that's really accessible to everybody going to look like. It's not going to be possible if we don't disconnect it from oppressive systems, um, as well as a profit motive. So, you know, just as an example, but I think that you could look at any number of things that way, um, because these things are all connected. And maybe coming back to like the idea of movements and organizing, because Solidarity Winnipeg just hosted a public discussion last night about an upcoming election that we're having within our province um, this year. And I, I think one of the core proponents of what we were talking about last night was, you know, we can't expect elected officials to make these demands for us. Um, and it comes back to this idea of how we need to organize within our communities to put these demands out there and cause, um, you know, these breaks in the capitalist system, in the police system, in the government system to facilitate change. And I know this, I'm, I'm going to be coming back to, you know, some of those tangible um, examples that you gave earlier about um, you know, not driving to the prison, not delivering um, weapons. And I, I think I just would like to explore this idea of connection and um, solidarity and union work and like how people can um, start to build those connections um, because it does seem so fragmented. You have different groups working on different things. You might be involved in your union um, you know, you have your your neighborhood community, then your city, like these um, micro and macro um, systems kind of all existing. And then like, where do you as an individual like situate yourself so that you can create the most leverage to cause these ripple effects of change? Yeah, that's such a good question. And um, really, uh, kind of case by case, right? That's very, I think it's challenging when your starting point is not necessarily people who agree on these questions, right? And every movement is going to bring in people who are coming from a lot of different perspectives. Um, but also when you're looking at, you know, a workplace where it feels like that's very far or the demands in my union day to day, you know, just getting us to have a meeting can be hard, you know, so it's like getting from that to like, let's demand, you know, these bigger political things um, is often really challenging and hard to imagine. Um, but I, you know, this isn't a full answer to your question, but I, I just wanted to give an example that I was really inspired by in my union. Um, one of my coworkers, um, who incidentally is a commie too, um, brought in a healthcare worker um, to speak to us, who incidentally is a commie too. Um, this healthcare worker uh, was talking about the nurses' strike that just happened in New York City um, and uh, how. You know, he worked for a public sector work uh, nurses union. This was a private sector um, strike, um, but how it really raised people's, you know, um, expectations about the problems happening in the city, the fact that we're all facing these huge cuts coming up and um, that, you know, because of inflation and just the cost of living going up so high that it's like these things may 
you know, seem very disconnected, but if nurses actually win their demands, it uh, makes it possible for us to make more demands of the city across the board, especially when they don't want to. And if we strike, maybe we could actually win even more. Um, and, you know, my coworkers, um, even though I'm in a legal service place that, you know, works with people who are highly criminalized, that actually, you know, is um, a majority Black union. So includes a lot of people who have you know, family members who have been affected by mass incarceration. Uh, that doesn't necessarily correlate to where people's consciousness is at. People often seem to be very accepting of the crime wave or of the need for more police or of, um, you know, maybe not such a, uh, a clear relationship between our working conditions and our clients' living conditions. So um, the fact that we had this discussion, though, was really fascinating because it made people who I've never really heard from talk about how Adams is this black mayor who is criminalizing people and kind of using his position as a black mayor to enact these, you know, repressive policies um, to kind of justify them as if he knows really what's going on in the hood or whatever, the, you know, um, but, um, you know, people don't buy that. Um, and, you know, also talking about um, the connection between you know, our workplace and, you know, what we might have to do. And just to say, you know, I think that it mattered that our union agreed to hear from a striking nurse. It mattered that, you know, we had people there interested in making that connection. And it, it just raised the level of discussion about all kinds of questions that we normally wouldn't get to talk about. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's always opportunities to do this, just kind of figuring out what works. That, so that just made me think of, of something uh, on a local level here um, for a while, there was a billboard uh, kind of prominently featured that was for um, one of our like uh, public sector unions, like the biggest one in the province, I think um, like the Manitoba government employees union. Um, that's the province we live in. And it was featuring a correctional officer as like, uh, like labor is great for me, like kind of like message. And uh, like, do you have thoughts on how like the systems of policing and incarceration tie in with labor in that way? I mean, 2020 was such a trip. It's kind of like hard to believe I lived through that, to be honest. There's, um, I can think of so many examples. I've never, I never would have thought abolish the police would be like a demand of a movement in my lifetime or that like it would be, you know, something that the Minneapolis, you know, city council temporarily said they were going to do. It was like, oh, is that possible under capital? You know, it was just wild shit and it didn't last, but it, you know, um, one of the other things that came up actually was around unions and whether the Policemen's Benevolence Association should even be in the labor movement. And it's like, you know, to me, it's like uh, police um, are not part of the labor movement. If you are on a picket line, who is actually disrupting your picket line? Who is making profits for the boss continue despite workers demanding better work conditions? If you're, you know, indigenous people who are, you know, protesting against the pipeline that's environmentally destructive on your land, who breaks that up? You know, like if you're black and you're just literally saying we want to live, who's the one that, you know, represses that movement? They're on the wrong side of history for every single thing. Like that just should not be where the labor movement is at all. Um, but the fact that there were actually petitions in 2020 to have the AFL-CIO kick them out of the labor movement was pretty remarkable. I don't, you know, uh, know of a time where that really was on the table. And, you know, we weren't at the point. Um, I think, you know, th there's all kinds of reasons that that didn't go further. But um, the fact that that is something people were actively think about says a lot about, you know, how radical this was. And, you know, actually, I, I wanted to come back to one other point um, that, uh, I don't think I really answered the question um, that Jess raised just about, you know, socialists who don't see this as, or see abolition as connected to socialism. I mean, I think that it's kind of like the classic, do we focus on bread and butter questions or do we focus on divisive, I'm making big air quotes, you know, uh, issues. Um, and, you know, the fact that would mean in practice that the left was sidelined from a movement that was in direct confrontation with the state, that was in 
direct confrontation with the capitalist class demanding that we have a society that actually provides for people's needs. Um, and honestly, for a redistribution of wealth, what other than that is defund the police a demand for? Um, we would be completely on the sidelines of a movement that historically has been in the vanguard of just about every social struggle and every major social change that has been won in this country because of the way that anti-Black racism is so central to the functioning of U.S. capitalism. And so, you know, similarly to this question of like, should the labor movement touch these very divisive questions or, you know, um, should the left be making just you know, universal demands, I think um, really ignores the way that uh, the ruling class has been successful in keeping the labor movement divided and keeping us from actually winning much. Um, and so I, I think that's another perspective that we have to, you know, win our unions to and not be afraid of the fact that it will be, you know, challenging or divisive. That's an excellent point. Um, I think that ties things together really nicely. Jess, did you want to ask kind of that last question? And Yeah, so I think as our final questions, we just wanted to ask a bit about where you see the movement going um, in the next few years. Uh, you know, maybe some tangible, excitable things that you're working on. Um, and I think just like what your thoughts are on a path forward from this moment? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we are in a really challenging moment because of the dynamics I mentioned. It's like we have a two-party system and the party that's supposedly better on racism is completely against all the demands that this movement has put forward and is in power right now. Um, we have a far right that is on the ascendancy and that, you know, I think is in some ways much better positioned, um, even if it's small, uh, to shape debates in this country, whether that's around crime or policing, um, uh, more recently around queer and trans issues and any number of things, um, and abortion, right? Um, and so that's very scary because the the extent to which any of our movements, not just the anti-racist movements in the US, but any of our movements, we're all dealing with the fact that, you know, really going back to the 70s and, you know, the like the neoliberal defeat of a lot of the uh, movements that erupted around the civil rights struggle, um, we really are dealing with a deficit of organization. And we've seen very explosive struggles, you know, from Occupy to Standing Rock to Black Lives Matter that kind of go up in waves and then disappear um, without kind of leaving behind the organizational infrastructure to sustain the very radical visions that they've put forward. And so, you know, thankfully, I don't think that, you know, I or the people that I organize with are the only people thinking about these questions. In fact, you know, if you um, can come, uh, you're certainly more than welcome. And so are your listeners to come to the Socialism Conference in Chicago uh, this summer. I believe it's um, around uh, September. Um, but, you know, go to socialismconference.org and check it out. Um, it's a very exciting thing when I went last year to hear about all these smaller groups of um, socialists, you know, um, especially Black socialists who I had never heard of and I had never met coming together and really thinking about this question of organization and bigger strategic questions for the movement. So things are happening, but I do think that we are, you know, really at a deficit at this point. But the, the fact that we are living in a society that engenders struggle just by its nature, it, it, we have not resolved any of the questions that were raised by the 2020 uprising. And so it is a guarantee. In fact, um, right now, as we speak, there's um, a guy named Travis Tyree who was killed brutally by police in Memphis. And just today, the five officers who killed him were charged. And it's interesting because I think in a previous moment, the fact of even charging the police officers would have been seen as this huge victory, would have been seen as an almost impossible thing to get. But what we're actually seeing now is that elected officials are already, because the body cam footage has not been released, they are trying to say, calm down, we're gonna release the footage on Friday. They are getting ready for the storm. And the fact that that's happening means it's gonna be bad when it comes out. It also means they know that people no, this isn't just in Memphis. It's not just about any one city. This could be any city in the country. And they know that people are 
um, much more attuned to these things than they have been in a long time. And so um, there's not going to be a shortage, you know, for, for better and worse of opportunities for us to organize. But I also think that that's a challenge we have to figure out how to rise to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity Winnipeg. See you.